All right, so we left off uh, with the British and the German lines being set, strategies being made, decisions being uh, forced on each side, and we are about to start part two. So settle in and enjoy this part of uh, this part two of the Second Battle of El Alamein. Late September of 1942, the British Eighth Army was made up of some 195,000 men from Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, Free France, and even some Greeks were mixed in there. With over 2,200 tanks between the front lines, the reserve forces, and in repair shops all over the, uh, the battle line, The Allied armor was its strength. Now, some of these tanks were the surprisingly powerful, if oddly designed, Grant tanks, but the Battle of the Second El Alamein was the coming out party, the quinceanera, if you will, for what would prove to be the Allied Army's most reliable workhorse tank, the M4 Sherman. A step up from the medium M3 tank, The Sherman had a 75mm turreted gun that was paired with an excellent and reliable chassis and engine. Easy to mass produce, the Sherman proved a huge boost for Monty and the 8th Army as it finally gave them a tank that was fully capable of dueling with the Africa Corps up and down the desert. Sturdy and reliable as the Shermans were, they did have a perceived propensity to catch fire quickly when hit. Now, most tanks and armored vehicles will catch fire. Think of it. It's a metal box with ammunition and fuel, which is basically just essentially a bomb on wheels or on turrets. And at some point, they if they get hit, they tend to catch fire and blow up. That's just the nature of the beast. But it seemed to many of the soldiers on both sides that the Sherman was far more prone to burning Uh, which earned it the name amongst the Germans of the Tommy Cooker. The British, always displaying their fine, famous gallows humor, took to calling the Shermans, quote, Ronsons, which was basically a play on the famous lighter, which had an ad campaign that claimed, quote, light's first time, end quote. Issues aside, the Sherman was by far the best tank that the Allies had on the battlefield, and it would be exactly the weapon needed to beat the Nazis back. Added to the overwhelming numbers that the Allies had in tanks, they had almost 1,500 field, medium, and anti-tank guns, and Montgomery's buildup was seemingly designed for one purpose and one purpose only. That was to kill the Africa Corps. Thank you. 
Rommel, for his part, was not idle while the British build-up went on. Now, he could only muster 100,000 men split almost equally between his Italian and German forces, but these were pretty much the best of the best. They were hardened desert fighters to the man and had been with him with his entire march across the North African coast. Intelligently and uh, very um, self-aware or uh, prescient, he decided to intersperse his units so as to have uh, Italian units, units anchored by Germans on both sides, which was hoped by Rommel to protect his weaker units, the Italian units, from being flanked or broken on either side because he would have his better units, his Germans, on each side of the Italians. In tanks, he was heavily outnumbered, but not necessarily outgunned. Again, his panzer leaders at this point, and his tank commanders at this point in the war, would have been among some of the most professional and experienced in all the world. Uh, other than the, the, the tank commanders rolling across the uh, Russian steppe at this point, the men in the North Africa uh, campaign were, would have been some of the most experienced anywhere on the planet. And even his Italian armored units, uh, units that he had, the Littorio and the Ariete, had proven their worth at this point on the battlefield with Rommel as their commander. Uh, with a tank count of barely 550, though, Rommel could not win the day if his tanks failed or were not functioning. However, lucky for him, he had a good number of the excellent Mark IV panzers. As history showed, the Germans had spent the entirety of the 1930s experimenting and improving tank designs, and the adaptability of the Panzer IV was great proof of this. With a, uh, a short 75mm gun, the Mark IV could work as infantry support primarily, and it was very, very effective at this. But its ability to, quote, stretch meant that upping the gun and the armor was fairly simple. So the Mark IV Special had a, a longer barrel and a high-velocity 75mm gun, and this made it excellent for hunting and destroying the shorter-ranged, lighter-armored Grant and Shermans of the Allied forces. Possibly the best tank in all of North Africa at this point in the war, the Mark IV's biggest failure, though, was simply in not having enough. You can almost hear Rommel at this point in the battle shouting, you know, a, a Mark IV, a Mark IV, my kingdom for a Mark IV. And, and Rommel, he knew the limitations of, uh, of the numbers that he had. And so he was going to be relying on the guns that he had as well. But in this case, he was, the numbers were just as lopsided against the Nazis as the, as the armor situation was. Because the Nazi forces were able to field about uh, 500 field guns, less than 20 heavy guns, and only around 800 anti-tank guns. Now, once again here, though, the numbers are slightly deceptive. Because of the anti-tank guns that the Germans had, 86 of them were the amazing dual-purpose anti-air 88 guns. Rommel had proven his understanding of the 88s throughout the North African campaign, 
disguising them well and positioning them in to great effect and and basically made them into snipers when it came to uh, enemy armor and in throughout the rest of the war the 88 would go on to prove itself all over Europe and Russia and it probably although I'm sure someone will make the argument that it's not but I would say it was maybe the most important and versatile weapon that the the German army came up with and so once the German line was set up and dispositions were made Rommel was forced to return to Germany he was not a healthy man. He had severe stomach issues. I think I read that it was um, uh, uh, liver inflammation and, and bronchial or throat issues. So he was forced to fly back to Germany for health reasons to coalesce. This meant that General Georg Stumm would be the general in command when the actual ban- battle began. And Stumm was a, a very competent uh, leader. He was an excellent soldier, a great uh, a great armor uh, tactician, but he was a veteran of the Eastern Front and and would have to quickly adapt to the realities of desert warfare, and he was also facing an, basically an inexorable avalanche of allied men and weapons. On the 23rd of October, at precisely 9.40 p.m., the British barrage of almost 600 guns began pouring a shattering and earth-pounding fire down upon the German line in the northern sector of the battlefield. The battle had been delayed and rescheduled a number of times because of conditions. Montgomery knew his Engineers would need the full moon, so as much light as possible, to go about the the delicate business of dismantling Rommel's little devil's gardens and minefields. So it was decided on the 23rd, and again at 9.40, the bombardment began. Initially, the Allied command was fairly uh, unnerved because the progress that the engineers were, uh, were making was fairly slow. And even with this massive artillery support, it started to disconcert some of the leaders at the top, wondering if they were going to be able to cross them uh, in, in the, through the cover of darkness and in enough numbers to make this initial push uh, as successful as possible. But Montgomery had rehearsed and trained his men super, super hard. He had really pushed them to the brink of, of what training could do. And his men almost, uh, you know, had broken, but they had had absorbed that training really well. And it began to pay off as the mine removal process picked up speed and worked in seamless concert with the infantry following and then the tanks supporting and coming up to open and widen any gaps in the German defensive lines. The artillery fire that the British poured on the Germans was intense and relentless across the battle, even causing Rommel's replacement, uh, General Stumm, to at one point fall from his car as he was racing up and down the battle going from point to point. And he, uh, after this artillery bombardment, he falls out of his car and he suffers a fatal heart attack. 
which means Stoom's death forced Rommel back before he had fully healed, and he's he basically flies as quick as he can, arrives within a day or two, and it, even at this early stage in the battle, Rommel, upon his return, looks around, assesses what's going on, and realizes that uh, it's pretty clear that the, the Germans cannot win this battle. It's lost. Uh, he was quoted later saying that, quote, Montgomery's plan went methodically and according to drill, end quote. The battle was being fought fiercely up and down the line, but attrition was something that the Germans just could not afford. The number disparity between armor and men on both sides was just far, far too lopsided for the Germans to be able to absorb any amount of large losses. At one point, Rommel made an armored thrust, so he was counterattacking, and and he was trying to uh, stop what looked like it was going to be a fairly successful British breakout in the northern sector of the of the battle line. But in doing so, in trying to stop, put a cap on this breakout of the British, he lost far too many tanks. At what was called Outpost Snipe, with only 19 six-pounder anti-tank guns, the, the British unit there took out an estimated 40 to 50 German allied or, or German and Italian tanks and assault guns. That is a huge, huge loss for, I mean, you're talking if they go into this battle with 550 tanks and in one encounter with a a relatively small British unit fielding only 19 weapons are able to destroy 40 to 50 of his armored units. Uh, that those numbers just don't work out. That dog just ain't gonna hunt. And eventually, Rommel realizes he's got he's got to change up his tactics here. So Monty was able. The, the problem, though, that R- Rommel ran into is that Monty was able to keep shifting the goalposts. He was forcing Rommel into again that more static, reactionary position that he wasn't used to, that he wasn't comfortable in. And that that really put Rommel on his heels and allowed Monty to decide when and where and how the battle was going to shape. On the 28th, Montgomery moved the emphasis of the battle again. And this was able to almost and, and, and this was a successful attack by Monty. And he was almost able to capture a large number of Axis forces at a place called Thompson's Point. But again, a quick, powerful counterattack by Rommel, though costly, ended up threatening British, uh, British lines and allowing the trapped Axis troops to uh, break out of their encirclement. But again, at what cost? Rommel's essentially saying that uh, the, the saving of this uh, almost trapped Axis unit is worth however many tanks and... Uh, however many armored vehicles he's going to lose in the process. And uh, once, uh, you know, after a brief amount of time, that math is going to start adding up. On November 2nd, Montgomery, again, he shifts the battle. The 2nd New Zealand Division, and after the battle, Montgomery famously uh, rarely shared success. He was a bit of a uh, glory hound, and in this case, though, he was effusive in his praise over the New Zealand infantry. 
he uh, spoke to every, you know, he, he basically painted them with honor and glory and, and could not speak highly enough about how incredibly uh, dogged and tenacious the New Zealand forces were at the Second Battle of El Alamein. Um, so anyhow, he shifts the battle line again. The Second New Zealand Division in the south bra- uh, broke through the last minefields uh, or I'm sorry, not in the south of the battle line, but the second New, v- New Zealand division breaks through the last minefields just north of a place called Kidney Ridge. Moving on one of those easily defended slight ridges that we talked about earlier, uh, a place called the Ridge of Akikar, which was in the northern sector of the battle line near the Mediterranean coast, this uh, slight ridge would become an incredibly hotly contested geographical feature. And again, we're talking about nothing more than a little, uh, a little mound in the, in the, on the horizon. It's not like this is a, a, a ski mountain or anything. It's, it's fairly small and seemingly inconsequential. But the uh, 9th Armored Brigade of the British 8th Army basically fights to its death on this little rise, or trying to take this little rise. Attacking the ridge was seen as suicidal by even the, the, the top commanders in the British Army at this point. A Lieutenant General Sir Bernard Freiburg saying, quote, We all realize that for armor to attack a wall of guns sounds like another balaclava, which uh, he's referring to the infamous doomed charge of the Light Brigade in the uh, Crimean War. He continues, quote, it is properly an infantry job, but there are no more infantry available. So our armor must do it, end quote. This kind of uh, sacrifice, this knowing sacrifice always blows me away. And in this particular case, it shows a couple of things. A, it shows how important even minor geographical points are in desert fighting. You're essentially naked out there in the desert, so any kind of uh, geographical point where you have elevation or something to hide behind becomes worth dying for, worth throwing huge amount of men and resources into a fight over. And then at B, it also shows how determined Montgomery could be. Montgomery had seen unimaginable pain and slaughter again all over the fields of France. I believe he was at Passchendaele, I believe he was at the Somme, and I think he was even at Second Ypres. And so he saw the very worst of war and the, the havoc and horrors that it could uh, uh, afflict mankind with. But he also understood that if a goal or a task had to be accomplished for the success of the mission, then there was no sacrifice that could not be made. At one point, he's quoted as saying in response to a subordinate's protest over this uh, suicidal uh, attempt at taking Akikar with nothing but armor, he says, quote, it's got to be done, and if necessary, I am prepared to accept 100% casualties, end quote. I mean, that is that is calculated, that is cold, but it is also the sign of a, a, a general or a commander who understands the, the price that sometimes has to be paid. 
Montgomery uh, truly, truly believed that this was a turning point in the battle and it had to go the British way. And as events would eventually uh, pan out, he was proven correct. The Allied 9th Armored, which was attacking Akikar Ridge, lost 87 of its 94 tanks and a huge amount of its men. But right behind it, coming right on its tail, was a major reinforcement of armor and men helping to eventually secure the ridge for the British. And the thing about this battle is that the British, although they suffered grievously, their armor taking huge hits, they could afford to lose a large number of tanks, and again, they could absorb those losses. The Germans, however, could not. After the brutal fighting at Akikar, the two Italian armored divisions essentially ceased to exist, and the entire Africa Corps on the El Alamein line was basically reduced to around 30 functioning battle-ready tanks. After a few more days of fierce fighting, it's on the 4th of November, the British forces advance and they start to poke and prod towards what they believe to be the enemy position, and they find that they come up empty-handed. Rommel and the Africa Corps had slipped away in the night. Rommel had realized again early on that the battle was unwinnable, but he was given orders by Hitler, uh, the same orders that Hitler would disastrously give time and time again on the Eastern Front, that Rommel was to stand and fight to the last man if needed, after uh, serious debate, it's um, we're not sure if Rommel defies Hitler here on the advice of, uh, of I believe it's Kesserling and Rundstedt. Somebody tells him to just go ahead and retreat, regardless of what Hitler says. Another source that I read had said that Hitler actually came around and gave him the okay. And then a third source says that Rommel defied Hitler, but Hitler, to save face, ended up giving the order to retreat. So whichever way it worked out, Rommel essentially gathers up his line and tries to disappear as quickly as possible. Uh, he puts in what will be essentially a, a fighting retreat along the entire North African coastline, and it's done masterfully. It's an incredible feat of military uh, might in its own way, very much uh, one of, of uh, ingenious traps. And this whole way, this whole retreat, Rommel has to continuously turn around, fight the British to a standing point, and then when they're recovering, licking their wounds, get his men back together and continue moving back along his supply lines. But what's interesting here in North Africa, we see uh, this kind of seesaw action because both sides eventually suffer the problem that the other one had. At certain points, you have uh, supply lines for the British becoming extremely strained. Rommel recognizes it, takes advantage of it by attacking, stops them. They have to uh, either stand still or move back a little bit, recuperate, and then they continue the advance. The Germans all the while have gained time and miles between them. Monty uh, and the British, though, at the Second Battle of El Alamein, 
had won a smashing victory for the Allied powers. Displaying, though, this curious uh, trait that seems to have affected a number of victorious Allied generals, the the British Eighth Army fails to immediately follow up the success and chase down the fleeing army. Um, But in this instance, I I tend to give Montgomery a pass. Immediately following the, uh, or towards the end of the battle, uh, there were some, you know, the desert's obviously dry, but when it rains, it friggin' pours. And at this point, there's a, a deluge and just a massive, almost torrential downpour. And the desert's uh, covered in what, what are called wadis, I believe, or wadis. Uh, and essentially, these work as funnels and create these destructive, deadly uh, washouts or, or flash floods. And so to travel with armor and men through uh, unknown terrain and the potential to get caught in some of these situations was just not worth it. There's also the fact that Montgomery rightly feared uh, the Desert Fox's tricks and making a conservative strategy here, I believe, was probably fairly wise. In the meantime, Monty goes about the process of securing his lines and resting his men. The casualties, the the disparity in losses was astounding after the battle. The Axis forces had lost half of its force, some 55,000 casualties, to roughly what worked out to be about uh, 15,000 Allied casualties. Italian units that the Germans had deployed had essentially disintegrated due to a lack of motorized transport. And keep in mind, uh, it it wasn't just the Italians here. Even the more mobile German units were reduced to skeletons of their former selves. And part of this is the, the British were taking large numbers of casualties, larger numbers of casualties than had been seen in any other uh, minor allied victory to this point. Uh, mainly because what happens in desert fighting is if you're surrounded, you have no access to water. And men realize that pretty quickly. And so if it comes down to holding a small defensive position for, say, 24 hours or surrendering and getting to some fresh water fairly quickly, men uh, make that, they, they do that mental calculus pretty quickly and tend to decide to go for the water. So even German armies or German troops are surrendering in larger numbers than had previously been seen. Also take into account that uh, the Germans to this point in the war hadn't really needed to surrender. So seeing any Germans surrender at all is uh, a fairly rare situation. Of his 550 tanks to start the battle, Rommel left with around 100 Some say a little bit more, some say uh, quite a bit fewer. I'm going to stick with 100. The Allies, on the other hand, lost more tanks, like we'd said. I mean, uh, the Allies could take it, though. Uh, They had an almost 4 to 1 ratio in armor superiority. So they, you know, losing more tanks in this battle really had no effect on their already impressive numerical superiority. And it was essentially a moot point anyways, because at at this point they are receiving 
pretty regular uh, shipments of tanks from the United States and are starting to be able to produce some of their own. And so uh, they're, they're, they're able to make good on their losses fairly quickly and fairly easily. The key component, I think, uh, of the victory of El Alamein was that it was used incredibly well as propaganda. It was earth-moving news at this point. It was earth-shattering. It, uh, it, was, it was the kind of news that lights the, the world on fire. Churchill's popularity, which again had been flagging due to his uh, poor choices and uh, some political positions he had put himself in, essentially after El Alamein, it skyrocketed and would not really dip again until, um, until uh, you know, uh, late 44, early 45, and, and then you started to see the, the cracks in the facade of the prime minister's uh, political machine. The British army, however, uh, once again was believed in. The, the people at home, the home front, this was, this, was, uh, this was water to a man in the desert. I'm sorry, I, I definitely, that was a weak, uh, a weak one, but, but it's true. It was, it was, it was water for, for star, or, you know, it, it, was a, it was a raft for drowning people. Uh, they, they did not think at this point... They, they started to believe that they could not beat the Germans, that they could not win. And it was at the first El, or the second El Alamein that they saw that they could really put a hurt on the German Wehrmacht. And, uh, and more importantly, though, the British army began to believe in itself again. The writer Guy uh, Walters says it pretty well, quote, El Alamein may not have been an elegant victory and Montgomery may have been a ponderous general, but it was a battle that gave the British what it most badly needed, confidence with which to go on and win the war, end quote. Monty uh, Montgomery became a household name at this point, and he would go on to be one of the celebrity generals of the war, although uh, not without his, um, uh, with his, without his own critics. And by celebrity general, I mean that World War II produces some pretty famous names. You've got Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, Montgomery, uh, you have uh, Slim, jeez, uh, uh, oh, I don't remember the name, Slim, Slim Bill or Slim Will, uh, the Indian uh, commander for the, for the British. You've got Rommel, Guderian, uh, you have uh, Zhukov, you have all sorts of these high-profile celebrity generals, and Montgomery becomes one of them at LL, uh, the second LL Main. Um, and then keep in mind that the, the strategic context of this victory is pretty broad. As the British are chasing the, the Africa Corps across the North African uh, uh, desert and coastline, the landings of Operation Torch of the American forces on the western coast of North Africa are, are happening at the same time. And so between the pursuit and the landings, the, the German and the Axis forces were essentially trapped between these two mighty pincer attacks. And although there were definitely defeats still to come in Africa, uh, most notably at Kasserine Pass, where the Americans are given their first real blooding and are defeated by Rommel and the Africa Corps, it was never really in doubt after the Second Battle of El Alamein that Hitler and his armies would get kicked out of Africa. 
Uh, and and uh, we'll end with this. Churchill famously was to say of the battle, quote, before it, we never had a victory. After it, we never had a defeat. Right, so that's a wrap on the second battle of El Alamein. Thank you for your patience. Thanks for following along. Uh, it's interesting, though, to keep in mind, like much of history today, there is a pretty heated debate as to what place the battle of uh, second battle of El Alamein uh, should take in the history books. There are arguments being made now about whether or not this was truly a great victory or not. I have to admit. After all the reading I've done, after all the research I've done, it seems to me that this was a bit of a gimme putt. Uh, the meaning of this victory was immense and far outweighed what I would say would have been the skill or generalship needed to win it. I'm pretty sure uh, whether it was Montgomery or any other British general at this point, with the amount of men and the, the numerical superiority involved and the air superiority of the RAF, as well as the constant uh, ability to resupply, if, if I mean, Christ, I feel like I could have won this. It, it, a general uh, that failed to win this battle for the British, I feel like was, was not worth his, uh, you know, was not worth his stripes. That being said, I am not a historian. I am not a military personnel, so I have nothing more than uh, the ability to read and try and decipher as much as I can and think critically about it. But that really is where I fall at this point. And I'm not sure uh, if Montgomery doesn't just kind of ride on this battle throughout the rest of the war. I don't want to diminish him. Obviously, he meant a lot to his men. He was an inspiration to the British people. But I think if we look at it critically, he wins El Alamein. Uh, he's very successful here. But again, with overwhelming uh, force of men and material. He's good in Sicily. Uh, I don't think he does anything that particularly makes him one of the greatest commanders. Uh, he's good enough in 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 Italy, and then the the, the place where he ends up is uh, he's okay in in Normandy after the D-Day landings. Uh, there's some setbacks there, and then there are some setbacks again when he's in Holland and in the Arnhem uh, uh, the whole Arnhem debacle kind of falls fairly squarely, uh, as much to my understanding. Obviously, I haven't done the deep dive into Arnhem that I have with other battles like El Alamein because we haven't gotten to there yet, but it seems like Arnhem lies at his doorstep too. So I'm not exactly sure where he gets the ability to be ranked up there with the great commanders of the Second World War. I have a feeling that maybe it's simply because he was the only real British commander of note uh, or at least of note in Europe, and this was one of the few purely British victories, so maybe that's where uh, where we stand there. And this is not, you know, by any means an original thought of mine. Even back in the immediate post-war years, George C. Marshall, the great man who uh, uh, was the uh, Joint Chief of Staff, 
was quoted as saying he, uh, I'm sorry, quote, he uh, explained that our opinion of the British at that time was not very high in that the president thought the 8th Army at El Alamein would lose again in the desert. FDR said to have them attack at night. The general marshal uh, discussed what was wrong with British command in Africa at some length. He said that the British in the Middle East, the 8th Army, had committed about every mistake in the book. It was no model campaign, he said. The pursuit of Rommel across the desert was slow and lumbering. The British even laid a minefield in front of them, in front of them which benefited the Germans more than it did the British. And here Marshall formed an opinion of Montgomery that left something to be desired as a field, field commander. The experience with Montgomery in Northwest Europe confirmed Marshall's opinion about that, end quote. So take that as you will. Um, Montgomery definitely did some great things. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. The jury's out. What, uh, what I wonder is, was Monty the right man for the right moment, or was he just a lucky man in the right spot? So start thinking about that. Toss that around. Let me know what you think. If you're an ardent Montgomery supporter, if you're a detractor, send that to me. Also start thinking about what the world would look like if Germany had won here. I mean, what happens to the United States? What happens to the torch landings? Uh, how does that affect the rest of the world at this point? It would have been... Uh, just as shattering as El Alamein, the second El Alamein was, uh, a German victory here would have been, uh, would have changed the game. Or maybe it wouldn't have. I, I don't know. Think about it and send me your thoughts and ideas. Get those into me at cauldronpodcast.com. Go to the theory page and submit. Or go to Instagram, search cauldron. Or Facebook, again, search cauldron. Or if you feel particularly squirrely and want to support me on the Patreon page, just go to patreon.com and search Cauldron. Thank you again for listening and following along. I look forward to a wonderful 2019 with lots of great stories, cool information, and hopefully a good interview or laugh here or there. Don't forget... Uh, if you want more images, go to the website, go to the Instagram. I post daily. Rate and review us on iTunes, please. And I look forward to talking to you guys again next time.